Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode of Paddling the Blue features Madison Eklund. At 26, and after three years of planning, Madison set off from Minnesota and paddled 1,600 miles solo through some beautiful territory to York Factory in Hudson Bay. From farmland to subarctic, she experienced an adventure full of learning and the kindness of strangers. So enjoy today's episode with Madison Eklund. Hi, Madison. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hey, John. How's it going? It's going fantastic. It is a beautiful day today. Yes, it is. Yeah. So let's start by uh, telling us a little bit about you and what led you up to this moment and this trip. Ooh, I get that question a lot. It's um, actually kind of a long story. So I grew up in upstate New York. I love the outdoors. I love hiking, kayaking, rock climbing, ice climbing, you name it. My husband, Ryan, he's in the military, and we got stationed out in Grand Forks, North Dakota, which is very flat. There's no trees. All of those things I like to do don't really exist there. So I wanted to do a long distance trip to kind of keep me connected to the outdoors. That's how this whole thing started. It became so much more than that, but that's really to, you know, the core of it, that's how it started. So I started looking at doing a long distance trip. Um, I picked the Red River because it flows right through town where we were living. It has a tributary, the Boys Day Sioux River, and then it has Lake Winnipeg to the north that it all flows into. So when I got out to Grand Forks, I started asking locals about just, you know, issues that I could face on the river. You know, are there dams? Are there hazards I need to be aware of? And somebody informed me about a much longer route that encompasses the three that I asked about. And it goes from Minneapolis to uh, York Factory up on the Hudson Bay, up in the Arctic area. So I started looking to that, ended up connecting with some people who had done the trip and decided that, you know, this is what I want to do. This is it. And here we are. And how long was that trip? It took me, I think, like 113 days. So roughly like four months for me. And that was that was pretty slow. I, I went really slow with it. A lot of people can do it faster. I mean, you could do it fast or you could do it slow and enjoy the whole thing. Yes. And I, I wanted to take my time and enjoy it. So. All right. And what's it 1600 miles? Is that right? Yeah, it's a high, high 1600s. So pretty, pretty close to 17. So here you are in Grand Forks, North Dakota, flat as a pancake, not much out there. Why paddling? Well, there's not really any hiking, but there is a river and I like kayaking. So I said, you know, let's, let's do a long, long distance river trip. You know, why, why not? All right. The other thing was the route had some really cool aspects to it. Uh, you'd see a lot of different parts of the Midwest, and the Midwest is not traditionally a you know outdoors person's paradise. There's not a whole lot going for it. So it was kind of cool to get to be out in the Midwest and be able to promote outdoor recreation and just see that area from a different perspective. A lot of fishing and hunting happens out there, but the facilities they have are not really set up for uh, like recreational paddling and such. So being able to connect with some of the local organizations and talk to the people who help with the environmental conservation on the river and just kind of give them that feedback of like, hey, you know, it'd be nice if you had some more boat launches in these sections or had more facilities for kayakers or for stand-up paddle boards or for whatever, you know, whatever the case was. It was really nice to be able to do that. As I got further north into Canada, I paddled on Lake Winnipeg, which is one of the largest lakes in the world, but also one of the most shallow So you get some really nasty weather, some really nasty waves, and it can be one of the hardest lakes in the world for recreational paddlers. So that's kind of a a badge of honor there, being able to get through safely on that. 
And then once you get up past that, you're up into First Nation communities and there's just a very unique Northern culture and getting to connect with the Cree and the Ojibwe people and being able to see all of the history in their area. It's just beautiful up there. So it's a really, really cool trip. So let's uh, let's kind of step through the trip here a little bit. So you, so you start in Grand Forks, North Dakota. That right? Or you, you start nope. somewhere else? I actually started down at Fort Snelling in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, so right near the Twin Cities. Okay. So I started at a historic fort there, and I did the whole length of the Minnesota River against the current. Against the current? Yes. Okay. Yep. All right, and how was that? Uh, it was it was tough. I was doing it right at the beginning of spring, so it's in flood stage, and oh. it was it was nasty to fight it. I actually ended up taking two weeks off in Lesueur, Minnesota. I stayed with the Straub family. I documented my time with them pretty heavily on my blog. They were awesome. They took me in for two full weeks while the river flooded aggressively. At some point, some of the highway bridges became impassable. The water went up so high. It was actually in the rafters of the bridges. There was log jams coming down the river. It was just really dangerous, not safe to be out on the river at that time. So I took two weeks off. Once the water started going back down, things were a little bit easier, and I actually made really good time catching back up to where I hoped to be and getting all the way to the other end of the river. So why did you choose to start there and know you were going to go upriver? And for how long did you go upriver? So the Minnesota River, it's about... 360 miles, give or take. So I was fighting the current for that whole section. I did start in the at the end of the Minnesota River because it is a historic trading route. That's where the fur trade came up through. The book Canoeing with the Cree took that route. And several of the people who've gone before me have also started in kind of the Minneapolis, St. Paul, Chaska areas. So it was just kind of following what people had done before me. It was something that I was a little nervous about the challenge, but I felt like it was kind of a, a badge of honor being able to do it the way that it's been done before. All right. And you said that there's other people who have done this route. So this particular route, I understand that yours was only the fourth recorded expedition using this route. Yes. Um, as far as I'm aware, the full route has only ever had four groups do it. So there's Canoeing with the Cree, which was Eric Severide and I think it was Walter or William Seaport. And they went in like the 1930s. So they took canoes and they did the whole route from Minneapolis all the way up to York Factory. In okay. 2008, there was Adventure North, which is the book that was written about Sean Bloomfield and Colton Witt. And they they started in Chaska, which is not far from Minneapolis, and they did the whole route up to York Factory. And then in 2011, the first two women to do the trip went, and that was Natalie Warren and I'm probably going to mess up her last name, but... And Raiho, I believe. Raiho, maybe. Okay. Um, and okay. she went up through, those two went up through in canoes and did the whole the whole route as well. So I'm actually only the third female, the fourth group altogether, and I'm the first person to do it solo or by kayak. Very cool. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. So as you're paddling through, uh, through the U.S., now how much of the trip was in the U.S.? A little less than half. And so you, you mentioned that you were having the opportunity along the way, uh, at least in that section, to kind of ass- assess the landscape and assess the, uh, the capabilities in the area. And how did you make those connections with people? Some of it was in advance. Um, I did reach out to several organizations ahead of time. And then some of it, a lot of it actually, was as I was going up through the river, I was getting connections from people who had previously done the trip or I was making connections kind of on the fly when I was showing up in towns. And they would say, hey, you need to talk to this organization or, hey, oh my gosh, you need to call this person because they would be so excited to get to know about your trip and get to talk to you about this. And it just kind of kept, you know, having that ripple effect as I went further and further up the river, 
I was just getting more and more and more contacts and people following along and people wanting to ask how I was doing and, you know, media outreach, everything. It just kind of really got crazy towards the end of the Minnesota River. It really picked up. How did things change as you went through to uh, enter to Canada? Um, as I entered into Canada, I had a few connections from people that I had stayed with in the States. So I actually did not have to camp until I was well up onto Lake Winnipeg itself. So I got to stay with hosts along the way. I had quite a few connections, but as you get further and further north, the density of towns and people really thins out. So you, it starts to get very, very wilderness um, type setting and you really just have to start camping more and really conserving your food and you know your energy and making sure that you have everything you need up there because it is, it is a lot more remote. So the first 350 miles are uh, on the Minnesota River up current and then, uh, then what? There is a chain of lakes along the South Dakota and Minnesota border, so I paddled through those. And then when I entered into um, partway through those lakes, there is a continental divide. So you cross that, I think it's the Laurentian divide, and you cross over that. There's a, like a one-mile portage through town. You enter into another small chain of lakes, and then you're in that down, downstream part of the system. So everything up until that point flows down to the Gulf through the Mississippi, and everything bef- um, after that point goes north towards the Hudson Bay. So I get into that system, paddled a couple of lakes, and then I got into the Bois de Sioux River. And when I reached there, I actually had partnered with the state of North Dakota. Their Department of Environmental Quality partnered with me. I had reached out to them several years prior to the trip. And we did water quality testing through the North Dakota section of my trip. So on the Bois de Sioux River, they came out, we did a training, we took the first sample, and then as I entered into the Red River system, I just continued to take those samples and, and you know collaborate with them. So it was really exciting to be able to do that. I have never done a citizen science project like that before, and it was so much fun. Neat. Now, were you, did you publish those results on your, on your blog or anything? Not yet. We are actually waiting to get something that we can put out to the public. They have gotten results back. I have not seen anything yet, but we we do have checks and balances that we had to take. We have to take blanks. We have to take duplicates. In theory, the blanks should have nothing in them, and the duplicates should basically match my first set that I took. And um, from my understanding, they came back as they should. They told me, the team told me I did a really good job. So I'm really excited to see what those results are. And when they have something ready to publish, it will be going up on my blog page for sure. Excellent. We'll make sure we get links to the blog and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that a little later and uh, make sure we get that in the show notes so folks can follow up on that as well. So you go through the chain of lakes um, and then so tell us tell us more. Yeah. So um, once I go through the Bois de Sioux and the Red Rivers, that takes me pretty much all the way up into Canada. The Red River goes along the North Dakota, Minnesota border all the way up through to Canada. And then, you know, you enter into Canada, the river takes you up through the city of Winnipeg. So I paddled right through downtown Winnipeg. <laughs> and then uh, you get onto Lake Winnipeg, and Lake Winnipeg kind of has a little bit of an hourglass shape. It has a south portion that they call the South Basin, and then it kind of bottlenecks where they have the narrows. And then it goes back up into the really, really large North Basin. They have some pretty nasty weather. They have some nasty wind that causes this thing called wind tides, where the wind will shift the volume of the water to one end or the other and the water rises up like it's a tide even though it's an inland lake mm-hmm. and um, you know just really really you're fighting the elements up there and then you get on to you, you're on the Nelson River for a little section but what we end up doing the Nelson River has a lot of hydroelectric dams 
so it's actually not good for traveling recreationally. So we're only on it for a short little jaunt and then we take a portage off into the Ekamamish River system and then the Ekamamish takes us into the haze and it goes all the way to the Hudson Bay. You mentioned Lake Winnipeg and uh, so if you can give us kind of an, an idea of the scale and size of the lake and then maybe the, the depth of the lake on average. Yeah, so the average length of the lake is roughly around like 280 miles long, I believe, from end to end. It varies depending on who you ask what, where it ranks as far as the largest lake. Some people will tell you it's like the sixth or the seventh. Some people will tell you it's the tenth largest lake in the world. It's very shallow though. So on, it says here on, on Google, the mean depth is only 12 meters, so about 39 feet. And there's a pretty deep channel between the two basins. But other than that, like it's very, very, very shallow. It's only like 30, 40 feet deep. So okay. you end up getting these really tall waves, but they're super, super close together. And that causes it to be extremely dangerous for boaters of any type, and especially for recreational boaters. If you're in like a kayak or a canoe or something, it's extremely dangerous. As you're going through uh, Lake Winnipeg, uh, what did you experience there? So my first day on Lake Winnipeg was only a half day, and it was pretty, pretty mild weather. I had a good time. I got up to Winnipeg Beach, and a host picked me up, and I stayed with that host for pretty much the whole South Basin almost. And the second day, I had planned to take a down day. They were having a really nasty thunderstorm that was coming in. I saw it on the weather, and everybody was warning me, do not be out on that lake in that weather. Do not be out there. So I had spoken with my host, and I said, hey, I think I'm going to take a down day. I can do like a resupply and work on some social media posts, getting those scheduled. The weather looks really nasty. They took a look at the weather report, and they were like, oh, yeah, you need to stay here. <laughs> so I stayed at their little cabin, which is a lakefront cabin. We were right down on the lake, and the waves were just crashing onto their beach and their shorefront, and it was just so violent. And they ended up getting like, around us, they ended up getting, I think, like 100 millimeters of rain or something like that. So it was like over three inches of rain. And the whole area, all the towns around us just flooded. It was crazy. Just, you know, how much water they got. It was just crazy. So that, that kind of put a lot of water into the lake. The lake was already really high. This was a pretty decent flood year. So like the Red River was really high. The Minnesota was, River was really high at the start of my trip, which is funny because if you've seen anything, it's kind of uh, pretty drought ridden right now where it's got a lot of drought. So yeah, the water was really high on my whole trip. The lake was probably about five feet above average. So a lot of the beaches that should have been there were not there. There was not a lot of camping. So I kind of just leapfrogged up the whole south, south basin and stayed with that host and they'd come pick me up. And then at some point I needed to use the islands to try to cross over to the other side because I went up the west side of the south basin and I needed to get over to the east side for the north basin. My crossing, my first crossing went really really bad. Where I left the water was like mirror still and then over on the side where the island was it ended up being really really choppy and it was just because of the way the winds were hitting and with the water so high the shelter that I should have had, the points that stuck out, they were underwater. So I had no shelter and the winds just really picked up some nasty waves. I had a terrible time Thought I was going to capsize my boat. Couldn't even call for help because if there was help, like they would not have been able to get to me safely. So that was kind of a scary moment. I had a bit of a reckoning with the lake. Thankfully, I got through it unscathed. I got around the end of the island and tucked in on the sheltered side and was able to work my way back up. The next morning, I was supposed to do a crossing between two islands and there's a really terrible current that goes up through 
and it was just between that and the conditions and the weather it was just too much so I decided to play it safe and I went to the north end of this island and got a person to shuttle me to the other side of the lake because I was just worried for my safety okay. so they shuttled me over there and then from there I just traveled the east side up when I got up into the North Basin, I connected with the Vagabond Voyagers. They were a group of six canoers that did a similar trip to mine this year. And we connected and actually paddled the rest of the North Basin together. So there was a lot of days where we got wind locked. Around noon every day, the winds really start to pick up, especially on the North Basin. And it's just too much of a wind to fight against. So there was days where a lot of the days we paddled together, we were actually up and on the water between 3 and 5 a.m., so that by the time we stopped for lunch around noon, we already had pretty much a full day of paddling in. And then if we got stuck, it wasn't the end of the world. So we did that all the way up. Um, I think we were together for probably about two weeks before we hit Norway House, which was the first uh, community we hit after the lake. Now, how, uh, how long were you on the lake? You know, that's a great question. I want to say it was about three, three and a half weeks. All right. So you get off the lake. What's next? So after we get off the lake, we go into a very short section of the Nelson River and Play Green Lake, and then we go almost immediately right into this First Nation community called Norway House, which was an absolutely awesome community to visit. The All the people in the community, they came out and they wanted to support us. They found us a place to camp. You know, now there's, it used to just be me, and now there's seven of us that had to find places to stay. So they ended up getting a campsite together, brought us a fire ring. So they brought us pickerel cheeks, which was kind of like a, a welcoming and parting gift all through Canada. That was something we got very, very often. And, uh, you know, they were just super welcoming. They brought us to their annual historic and cultural celebration called York Boat Days. We got to see the York Boat races. It was just a really good time. The community was so welcoming. It's such a, you know, warm community for paddlers to go through. From there, we get back onto the lake. We go into the Nelson River system portage into the Ekamamish, and then the Ekamamish goes into the Hayes, and we ended up going to one more First Nation community called Oxford House. Um, so I got to stay there for a few days and stayed with the host family, and then it's it's pretty much nothing after that, all the way to the bay. There's a small fishing resort, and then it's just, you know, 200-something miles until you hit the bay. All right. So how did things change, and how did the people change, I guess, from Lake Winnipeg on, on up? You know, that's a great question. Everybody in Manitoba was super, super friendly. The license plate is is true. Manitobans are very, very friendly. Um, so I can't say I had any, any bad experiences anywhere. I really enjoyed everybody that I got to connect with and stay with along the way. Um, I got to visit several of the First Nation communities. I will say that in southern Manitoba, I did have a lot of people who warned me about my safety and you know, just trying to keep an eye on my stuff because they said that theft and, you know, certain crimes can be more common in the First Nation communities. I tried not to let that get to me because I know that there is kind of a stigma against that. As I got further north and I started witnessing these communities firsthand and getting to interact with them, I found that everybody across the board, regardless of the community and what they were known for, I found that everybody was super welcoming and just wanted to help and just wanted to be there. And like, especially with Norway House and Oxford House, Barron's River, all of those communities, they really just wanted to welcome us and like, you know, take care of us while we were there. So I had some very good experiences in all the communities. I, I felt safe in all of them. That's great to hear. Yeah. And then as, as like I said, as we get further north, we go up into the First Nation communities. Once you get onto the north basin of Lake Winnipeg, there is no more like 
I don't really want to call them regular communities, but there's no more like, you know, uh, European settler type communities. It's all First Nations from there on. Okay. And um, it was just, it was really awesome getting to connect with them and see a little bit of their culture and a little bit of their lives. And, you know, a lot of them fish and hunt for sustenance up there. It's hard to get supplies, a lot of supplies for houses and food and, you know, any type of anything you need, um, parts for your car, stuff for your dog, everything has to be flown in. The doctors are flown in, veterinarians are flown in, everybody's got to be flown in. So it's, um, it's kind of where like the communities all take care of each other because they they have to. That's how they support each other. So it's just a very, very welcoming, supportive community. It's got to be interesting paddling through you know, areas where they have, you know, your your gas stations and grocery stores and department stores and McDonald's, and and all of a sudden you just transition into a, a totally different type of community. Yeah, yeah. They usually would have one main storefront. It was almost always a northern store, and that northern store would function as their grocery store, their hardware store, their you know, parts store. It also would be where the post office was and where you would pick up money orders. And it was, it was literally like a one-stop shop and drop. That was where you got everything. So it's kind of, it was kind of crazy. What I will say is that Tim Hortons was at every single one of them. So <laughs> they always had a Tim Hortons. So even in Norway house and uh, in Oxford house, there's a Tim Hortons. Yes. Yes, indeed. They all had <laughs> Tim Hortons. I, I was the weirdest thing, you know, it's comparable to like our, our Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts in the States. And they just <laughs> always had one at every community. It was crazy. So what's the farthest North Tim Hortons you found? Oxford house would have been, okay. would have been the furthest <laughs> North, that, but that's my furthest North community too. So I don't know okay. if Tim Hortons goes further. I would assume they do, but I, I don't know. So <laughs> At what point did you feel that the trip became wilderness? That is an excellent question. I feel like when I got the shuttle ride on the South Basin, uh, when I had, I wanted to cross over to the Eastern side and I was having a hard time, I got that shuttle. I think Mm -hmm. that's really where it became wilderness. That Eastern side is much less populated than the Western side where I had been on the South Basin. And you just kind of end up like the whole, the environment, everything changes. You go from kind of a sandy, lowlands, Midwestern rivery area that flowed into the lake. And then all of a sudden you kind of go over into this almost boreal forest area. So the scenery changes, it's much, much more remote. There's less communities. And from that point on, pretty much every community is First Nations. So it's just, you know, a different feel, a different vibe. It really becomes that wilderness, that wilderness feel. It's hard to get out because there's no roads. So if you need assistance, if something goes wrong, like it's going to be a lot harder to get assistance. So I think that's really where it started, and it definitely picked up heavily once you got into like the Ekamamish River and the Hayes. That's where it started to get really, really remote. So you uh, you pass Oxford House, which was your last last um, basically outpost, right? Yep, that was my last community. How did the trip change from there for you? So I paddled um, when I left Oxford House. I paddled one full day to North Star Resort, which is a fishing resort. It's completely remote. It's a fly-in resort only. I stayed there for a night, and that was actually my last contact with people for the entire trip. And I think, I want to say that was around August, something in the teens. So I still had about 10 days or so left left of my trip where I was going to be fully remote, not seeing a soul on the river. So it was, it was kind of overwhelming being that remote and knowing that like Oxford House was my last way out. That was, if I wanted to bail on the trip, that was where the last airport was. There's no roads there, so I'd have to take a plane out. And after that, I, I'm on my own. Either I'm getting to York Factory or Coast Guard's got to come in and look for me. It's one or the other. So you did not see another person for 10 days from that point? 
No, I after I left the Knee Lake Resort there, the North Star Resort, I did not see another person. So how did the trip change for you from there? Once I left Knee Lake Resort, it became very, very remote. I did not see any more people. There was no more communities. So um, it was very peaceful. There was a lot of solitude. Um, you're just kind of, it's just you and nature at that point. One of the things I did struggle with, though, is that it's very lonely. I had um, struggled with loneliness quite a bit on this trip. It wasn't really my intention to do it solo. It just kind of happened that way. So I had been fighting loneliness when I was in the Dakotas back in the States. And then it was all right on, on the lake because I had been around a lot of communities. And then I had uh, the Vagabond Voyagers to travel with on the North Basin. But once I got into the Ekamamish and the Hayes River system, the loneliness started to kind of creep back in and it was something I had to kind of work with. So I did listen to like a lot of music and podcasts and just tried to have noise to kind of keep me company. But yeah, it was it was very remote, but it was a very peaceful, beautiful wilderness. It is just so gorgeous up there. Did you find that those things helped with the loneliness? Sometimes. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. It also helped. Um, the Hayes River has 45 sets of rapids from end to end. So there was also stuff to kind of break up the day and it wasn't as monotonous as the Red River in the States could be. So that kind of helped too, that, you know, you're kind of in your head and you're feeling lonely and then all of a sudden you have a portage and, you know, you're focused on getting your boat across and your gear across to the other side. So that, that happened quite a bit throughout the haze. So that, that did help a little bit. I think the loneliness was definitely the worst um, when I was down in the Dakotas. So was there any time that you thought about quitting? <laughs> You know, there was probably probably a few times, but none that I fully took to heart and none that I acted on. Um, I was kind of nor nervous when I left Norway House, knowing that we were going to be going alone from that point on. Uh, the Voyagers wanted to do their trip a little bit slower, and I had a deadline to meet, so we decided to split ways there. Just knowing that I was going to be solo and not having a ton of experience with rapids, I was pretty nervous about it. I did consider quitting um, just for safety reasons. But I also, I'm stubborn as all get out. So I was like, I need to finish this. I set out to do this and this is supposed to be the fun part of the trip. So I just kind of pushed through and did it. So why did you choose to go solo? You know, I didn't really choose. It just kind of happened that way. I had looked to have a friend come with me. I had a couple people who were interested, but all of them either ended up having some sort of life change that they wouldn't allow them to commit or they just couldn't dedicate four months of their summer or even a, like a month of their summer, you know, just a section of it. They couldn't even devote that to doing a trip like this. So it just became like a lack of availability of friends who wanted to do this. So I've done a lot of solo hikes and solo backpacking before. So I said, there's no reason why I can't do it solo with a kayak. I know how to navigate, I know first aid, I know about like uh, safety situations and things I need to be aware of. I feel very comfortable with all of that. So I don't want to let the solo aspect stop me from doing something that I wanted to do. So I went and it, it, like I said, it was a struggle. It was lonely at times, but I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I went out and had this adventure. What was the landscape like on the Hayes River? And you mentioned the 45 sets of rapids and, and you know, no people. Just kind of set the stage for that. Yeah, so the, the Hayes River is absolutely beautiful. Um, you start kind of in this upland, woodsy, boreal forest area, and then you're working your way down to the lower Hayes River system, which has these very tall, sandy cliffs, these massive bluffs, and you're paddling basically through these bluffs all the way to the coast. So it goes from, like I said, boreal forest to almost open tundra in some parts of it. It starts to become sparsely forested. The trees are starting to taper out. 
and you're really going up into Arctic tundra. The last 60 miles of my trip actually is inside of polar bear territory, so that's another concern I had to kind of handle and make sure I was being safe for. So you are getting up into that, that Arctic biome. What kind of wildlife experiences did you have up there? Not as many as I thought I was going to. Most of my wildlife experiences were prior to getting on the Ekamamish in the haze. I had seen uh, moose on the lake. I had had a black bear on the Nelson River shortly after leaving Norway House. I saw tons of deer and coyotes in the States, fox, songbirds, bald eagles almost every single day of my whole trip. So there was a lot of wildlife, but once I got up north, it was, it was pretty quiet. I saw some geese and ducks. I did not end up seeing any polar bears or wolves or caribou, nothing like that up on the haze or the Akamamish. So a little bit bummed out I missed out on that, but you know, it's just, it's also a safety thing. I'm kind of glad I didn't see a polar bear while I was in my boat alone. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a double-edged sword, I suppose. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Did you see any evidence of human impact uh, as as you got higher north? Uh, You know, surprisingly, I didn't. There was parts of like the Ekamamish River where I would find like little bits of trash here and there, but it was a lot less than I was expecting. I, I did joke with friends, you had to look for the beer cans or the, the oil canisters, the camp fuel canisters. They would put those on the trees to mark portages. So it was kind of like a blessing and a curse. It's like, oh, there's garbage, but it's then it's like, oh, hey, actually, that's a portage. That's important. I'm glad that's marked. <laughs> and like the cans, the reason why they use cans or aluminum uh, fuel containers is because they catch the sunlight. So they kind of glint when you're at a distance. So you know where you're going and you're okay. able to kind of, you know, go straight for the portage. So um, that was really helpful being able to have those there. So I won't fault them for that. But, uh, you know, there really wasn't a lot of trash. There wasn't a lot of stuff to worry about on the river. I had been cleaning up some of the trash here and there at boat launches in the States and in parts of parts of like Lake Winnipeg area. But once I got further north, it, there really wasn't a lot. It was a lot less influences of people. Every now and again, they would have like hunters or trappers cabins, which are these tiny little like plywood houses. It's basically a one room cabin that they would put up. And they're used as kind of an outpost for the First Nation community members to be able to go out and go hunting out of them or go fishing out of them. Some of them were really nice. Some of them were in very rough condition. Most of them had some form of a garbage pit because they just don't have anywhere to take it. You know, they, they'll have like a burn pit or a garbage pit where they leave some of the cans and stuff that they bring up. Some owners are much better about keeping them keeping it clean than others. Others, some of them are really, really bad. Uh, so it just depends on the cabin. But um, those were few and far between, especially once I got onto the haze. The haze, they're very, very thinned out. There's not a lot of cabins left up through there. So it was kind of wild when I got down towards the lower section of the haze. After the rapids and everything was done with, there was only two cabins. I found one at the confluence of the Fox River in the haze and one at the confluence of the Gods River in the haze. And I hadn't seen people for days. I hadn't even seen signs of people. No garbage, no nothing. I, I, you know, the only thing I had seen was jet planes overhead. That was it. And uh, just all of a sudden coming around a corner and being like, oh my gosh, there's a cabin right there. <laughs> it's it's kind of surreal at times. So, You mentioned skills earlier. What process did you go through to develop your skills to be prepared for this trip? You know, I have been a kayaker for about 20 years of my life. I know I'm young, but I've kayaked since I was really little. So I felt very comfortable in a boat. I'm pretty confident in it. I've worked on being able to roll a kayak. I'm not quite there, but I think I'm close. Um, A lot of the stuff I've done has been self-taught. 
So as far as kayaking goes, there was some concerns I had with like uh, the whitewater and the rapids. I did reach out and try to get a whitewater course. And I think overall I would have felt more comfortable with the trip had I had a whitewater course. But what ended up happening is obviously 2020, we had the pandemic, the course got canceled. 2021, I reached out and tried to do it again. And they ended up relocating the course to, I think, southern Wisconsin. So instead of it being a five-hour drive each way into Minnesota, it was going to be like nine and 14 hours each way. And at the time, I was working nights, so I would need a day to switch to day schedule and then be able to go and drive for a full day and then do the course and then come back and switch back to nights. It just didn't end up happening. It didn't work with my schedule. So that's definitely a regret I had. I think I would have been more comfortable with a whitewater course going into this, but I didn't have the luxury of that. So it was um, a bit nerve wracking. I did feel that I had a good awareness about rapids and that's why I continued on to go do it. Some of the trips that went before me, they also had very little to none experience in rapids. So I kind of kept that in the back of my head. Not that it means that it's the right way to do it, but you know, other people have had very little experience and made it through fine. So there's no reason that I can't either. So how did you negotiate the 45 sets of rapids? Quite a few of them were class ones and class twos. So okay. um, most of the, I'm not going to say most of them were runnable, but there was a good chunk of them that were runnable and you didn't even have to get out and scout. So a lot of the class ones, you could just sit up above them and kind of paddle backwards gently and like kind of look and see where the rocks were. And then you'd be able to just go through. There was some that were a little bit more technical that I did get out and scout just because things looked like they could be a bit more tricky. Lots of, um, most of the class twos I ended up scouting and pretty much anything over that I didn't run at all. Um, okay. There is a class five and there's a couple of falls on the route. So there is like some pretty obvious portages at those. Big one was Robinson Portage, which is eight tenths of a mile long. It goes around Robinson Falls, which is five sets of falls. And that one throughout history has been known to be very deadly for travelers, especially the fur traders back in, you know, older history. So there's a couple other falls. Leaving Oxford House, there's Trout Falls, which everybody was warning me while I was in Oxford House. Oh, watch out for Trout Falls. That one's a doozy. Like, you're not going to want to go over that one. So thankfully, there was really good portages. Everything was marked. When I was close to these First Nation communities, many of the big ones also had these things called skids which are these pine trees that they've felled and they've tied them together into almost a ladder shape. And then you can pull the boat across the ladder and get it over so you don't have to drag it on the rocks because they actually portage their, their 18 foot fishing boats over these, their motor boats. So okay. it was kind of nice having those because it made portages a lot easier. Yeah, it sounds like good. But yeah, once you, once you get more remote, those portages become few and far between those, those skids. So you're portaging through like true wilderness where there's bushes and you're going up and around corners and up and around trees and pulling your boat through. And it's a little bit harder then. Were you able to find good quality maps and, and resources to be able to tell you what's coming up? Yes. Yes, I did. Getting a map system that I liked was a little bit challenging. I'm kind of old school when it comes to maps. I really like to work off of paper maps. I know a lot of people told me on my route, like, you're going to want a GPS, you're going to want a GPS. I had a GPS, but I just don't find it as user-friendly. Like, you have to press the button to wake up the screen and then scroll around and find where you are on the map. I like paper maps because I can keep them right on my deck and I can just look down while I'm paddling and say, oh, here's the turn that I was looking for, so now I know where I am and I didn't have to touch anything. My hands stayed paddling the whole time. So it actually took me a couple of tries to find some maps I liked. I ended up ordering from three different companies. And the third one was finally the one that I liked the maps and I kept those. 
Additionally, I also had a book called Wilderness Rivers of Manitoba by Hap Wilson. And he, I think the book is from the 80s. He and his wife traveled a whole bunch of these wilderness rivers in Manitoba, and they actually documented the rivers and the rapids and like where camping sites are and like different things you might see along the way. I had some pictographs I saw from uh, the First Nation communities that I think I think I got an estimate today. Some of them are like 4,000 year old pictographs. And he marked a few of them on the maps, not the exact location, but kind of the general area. So you can start looking and have your have your eyes up watching for them. And that was a really, really important resource. That book was so important for me to be able to do this trip because it shows you the rapids and how they recommend running them. Obviously, it's not perfect. You got to kind of take it with a grain of salt. The water that when I went through was really high. That can change the volume of the rapids. Some of the class two rapids in the book that they said could be a problem didn't exist when I went through. The water was so high, it just flattened everything out and it was just some riffles and some maybe maybe some swifts. It wasn't even a class two rapid. And then there's others that were, you know, class one technicals or class twos and they looked like class threes when I went through. They were huge and I was not willing to run them. So um, you do have to take it with a grain of salt. The book's not a guarantee of what you're going to experience. It just kind of gives you a little bit of assistance knowing how to potentially go through it. So what was your prior expedition experience to this one? <laughs> uh, not much, actually. Um, I've done some backpacking trips, but they've all just been like weekend trips, nothing nothing crazy long. So this was my first long distance trip. This was a big one. So you went all in from, from a few days to four months. Yes, I did. I went all in. <laughs> um, I should note that people did ask me, like, how do you know you're going to be able to do this for four months? And I said, well, I have car camped for four months. I lived out of the back of my two-door Wrangler. And I did that while I was at like campsites and I was working at an outdoor retailer at the time. So the duration of living off grid and kind of roughing it was the same. So I was like, it's, I mean, I'm just going to be kayaking. That's the only difference. Yeah. I feel like it's not, not too much different. As far as long distance trips go, go, this is my first big one. And you're just not carrying a Wrangler with you on this one. You're just <laughs> yeah. carrying a, a boat. Yeah. Carrying a portage <laughs> pack and a 60 pound plastic boat. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you use for gear? So I actually ended up with a sponsorship and a grant through a company called Big Agnes. And mm -hmm. a lot of my gear has already been from them prior to this. I really love them as a company. They have a really good sustainability model. Um, they do a lot of uh, environmental conservation work and give back to public lands. So they're just a company that I love and I love to support them. So I had reached out to them before this. I ended up applying for the Bob Swanson Memorial Grant and found out that I had placed second in it. And we started working on a gear sponsorship, getting some gear stuff together. And I asked for some upgrades to stuff that I already had. And then they came back and said the first place person had a change of plans and they can't do their trip. So this lady was backing out of her grant and they asked if I wanted that and the gear sponsorship. And I was like, absolutely, I'll take both. So <laughs> I had a little bit of financial help, which was really nice. Helped with the, the stress of, you know, doing a long distance trip and being unemployed for that whole time. And then I already had a big Agnes tent, which... I got it damaged from an REI garage sale and had it professionally repaired by their gear repair service, which is great, by the way. They have amazing customer service. And then they gave me a, oh gosh, what is it called? The, the under tarp for the tent. They gave me one of those. Uh, they upgraded. Yes, thank you. The footprint for the tent. Um, they upgraded my sleeping bag. So I had a zero degree down bag. It was a Daisy May specifically. And they gave me an inflatable pillow. Um, I had some 
uh, a camp table and chair. And um, those were, they gave me a really cool colorway for those. The colorway supported the Yampa River Fund in Colorado. So I had, a, you know, a whole nice gear set up for the whole thing. The table and chair, unfortunately, did not do the whole trip with me. I did end up sending it home when I reached Norway House just because I didn't want to portage extra weight. So I really slimmed down my gear when I hit Norway House. But um, I really like their gear. Like I said, they're very sustainable. And then on top of that, I am super tough on my gear. And I find that their gear lasts a pretty long time. So it just, it stands up to the abuse. And when you're on a long distance trip like this, your gear is going to break. So having a company that's really good with the customer service and has a repair center and all of that, it's really nice to have that. So they're just an excellent company. Um, as far as the, the boat goes, I had a Wilderness Systems Tempest 170. It's a 17 foot long roto-molded plastic kayak. And it has three hatches with rubber seals that go over them to seal everything in. So I used that, and then I had um, two paddles I brought with me. My main one was an Aquabound paddle. It was just like a carbon fiber, light, lightweight one. And then I had a Bending Branches wooden paddle. The whole paddle was made of wood. And the reason why I bought that for my backup paddle was because when I reached Work Factory, they still have the historic metal brand that they used to brand all the, the cases going onto the boats to ship. And you actually brand your paddles at York Factory. If you reach it by canoe or kayak, they will brand your paddle for you. So I wanted to have a wooden paddle to be able to do that. Oh, now that's cool. Yeah, it's a cool souvenir for a, for a big trip like this. Definitely, definitely. So how did you prepare for the trip? It was actually tough to prepare. I had been planning for about two to three years, and I was supposed to do this trip last year, but the Canadian border closure and the pandemic kind of sidelined that, so I had to postpone a year. And then, you know, it was just a lot about getting the gear together, the logistics. For me, I also have an autoimmune condition called celiac disease, and I have to eat entirely gluten-free. It's the only way to handle that, that disease. So I had a little bit of a logistical challenge with food. A lot of the food that you would normally take on an expedition, I cannot eat. So having to find what I could substitute all of the stuff for and then having enough of it to take me through my trip, that was really important. Food scarcity becomes an issue because in a lot of communities you can't get gluten-free food. It's not readily available. So I actually stockpiled all my food and built resupply boxes in advance prior to leaving. And then we mailed them along my route when I needed them so that I would have them when I got into towns. And I'm super, super glad I did that because a lot of the communities just didn't have food I could eat, especially once you get so far north and the prices skyrocket for food. It's just the availability is so slim. I really would not have had a healthy diet. I would not have had a lot of options for me. So I'm really glad I did that. So, you know, handling the gear, handling the food, finances, they say for like trips like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, those are long distance hiking trails. They tell you on average to have about $1,000 a month saved up just for, you know, transportation costs when you go to and from towns and when you need to go buy resupplies, stuff like that. So knowing that I was planning the four months for this trip and that I was going to have a bit of time off after when I would need to look for a job, I planned five months, so $5,000 worth of costs. And I already had all my food stockpiled, so I knew that that was going to kind of be helpful having that all set aside. But I would have to mail it, so that's an additional expense to kind of factor in. And, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty much it, you know, the finances, the, the food and the gear. So um, as far as workouts go, I had a lot of people ask about what my training plan was. I worked nights leading up to this trip. I worked for the post office and I worked as a mail handler. So we were actually 
the ones who bring in the trucks, unload the trucks, throw 70 pound bags of mail into the machines, then take the 70 pound bags of mail at the other end and put them where they need to go. So I was lifting, heavy lifting, heavy weight all night long for, you know, 18 months leading up to the trip. So I really didn't have a workout plan. I didn't have time to go to the gym. Working nights, I never saw the sun up. So I wasn't up during business hours. I couldn't really go to the gym. And honestly, there is really no way to prepare for a long distance trip like this physically, because regardless of what you do at the gym for two, three, four hours, you're still going to hurt when you get out there. You're still going to be sore. There's still going to be muscles that you're not used to working, and it's it's still going to suck. So a lot of times with these long distance trips, they they say that like your training for it is the first two weeks you're on on the trail. So, you know, I was sore. I was sore, and it's something you got to work through at the beginning. And when I took those two weeks off in the sewer for the flooding, when I got back on river, I was sore again. And it's just something you got to mentally fight through. But it's really not, it's not as bad as you'd think it would be. A lot of people think it's, you know, this grueling, crazy trip. And it, it is in the long scheme of things. But in the short of it, it's just like a weekend trip and then another weekend trip and then another weekend trip. You just keep tagging on another weekend trip. And you're stopping at towns every handful of days. So you do kind of have that to break it up and put a pause on it at times. So it's really not as crazy. There's some days where you're only doing a handful of miles and some days where you're doing long days, you know? If you had to go back and do it again, what would you do different? You know, not much. I like the experiences I had. I really enjoyed all of the people I connected with. The only thing I joke about that I would do different, I had a couple of really nasty thunderstorms towards the end of my trip. One was up at the north end of Lake Winnipeg when I was still with the canoers. We had a terrible, terrible, terrible thunderstorm there with like golf ball sized hail and like my tent broke and one of the other tents broke. It was just a, a mess of a situation. And then I had another really nasty thunderstorm where lightning was touching down everywhere. It was super dangerous. And that was out when I was alone on the Ekamamish River. And prior to that lightning storm on the Ekamamish, I had seen a really nice trapper's cabin with a beautiful red door and it was right off the edge of the river. It looked great. And I have this thing where I'm just like, I don't want to stop. Like, I need to get some more miles in. I need to get more miles in. This wasn't where I wanted to end for the day. So I ended up pushing on, found out that the river was overgrown with like a peat moss. It had some sort of plant life that was growing in these giant mats. And it was a nightmare to try to kayak through. You actually have to kind of take your paddles apart and like pull yourself through because you can't stand on it. You can't wade in it and your boat can't get through just by paddling. It was an absolute nightmare. I ended up camping on bedrock there, and then the next morning I got up, tried to reattack the weeds that I was fighting through, and the thunderstorm came right over me. I ended up sitting in the woods for two hours in lightning pose while lightning was touching down, and I could smell the ozone burning from all the lightning strikes. And I was just thinking the whole time, I should have stayed in that trapper's cabin. <laughs> I, I could have had a really nice, cozy morning, had some hot chocolate. Like, I should have stayed in that trapper's cabin. So I think... Um, I think if I was to go back and do it again, I would stay in that trapper's cabin. I think that's probably the only thing I would change. Coincidentally, just to add insult to injury, I actually connected with the owner of that trapper's cabin on my blog page. And they were like, did it have a red door? And I was like, yes, it did. They're like, oh, we leave that unlocked for travelers. You should have stayed. And I was like, oh, you're killing me. You're killing me. I would have loved to have stayed. I should have, especially with how things played out. <laughs> But you ended up with a great story out of it. Yes, yeah. You know, that was the running joke. My Every time I was having something terrible going on, my dad's like, oh, it'd be great for a book. <laughs> <laughs> How did you stay connected during the trip? So I did have a GPS with me. I know we talked briefly about maps before. 
I had a Garmin InReach Explorer with me and I had an unlimited subscription plan. So I could actually message to a text message back and forth with my husband, with my dad, with whoever I wanted. I could put their phone number in and text them. Sometimes those texts do take a while to go through. Some of the longer ones took like half an hour at the longest, but most of them are pretty quick. They go through and usually you have a response back within a handful of minutes. So it was nice to be able to to stay in touch that way. It's also kind of a safety and accountability thing. I was able to tell them when I got on the water during the morning and when I got off the water in the evening so they knew when I was like when I was out and about and moving. Additionally, that two-way messaging system, it actually pings my location. I have it set so that every time I send a text message, it sends my coordinates and they can click the link on their text message and see within like, I think it's like three to 10 feet where I was. So they knew pretty much at all times, like, oh yeah, she's right here. So that was a really awesome device to have. And for expeditions like this, it is worth its weight in gold. I know it's an expensive piece of equipment, but it is, it is so worth its weight in gold. It also has an SOS beacon. So if anything were to go tragically wrong and I needed search and rescue support to get me out, there is an emergency SOS beacon on that. I can press it, it calls the Garmin call center and they bring in the respective rescue people, whoever it is, whether it's the sheriffs or the Coast Guard or whoever. So you get to the end, York Factory. It's Mm -hmm. in sight. You can see it from here. Tell us that moment. That was a big day for me. I had stopped a little bit short of where I wanted to be the night before. So that was actually a 65 mile day. And thankfully, the river's pretty big at that point. So you've got a lot of current pushing you towards the bay. So I just, I paddled. I had a very early morning and I just started paddling and I got in about sunset. And this whole time I thought I was going to cry. I thought I was like, I'm going to be so emotional getting there. I'm going to be like a train wreck. I'm going to be like a snotty mess crying. (laughs) And I got in and I was just so like with the sunset setting, I was like, it's go time. Like I got to get up there. I got to let them know that I'm here. I got to, you know, get my gear up. I need to get my my tent set up. I need to figure out where I'm staying tonight. So I just kind of hurried up the stairs there. It's a there's really tall bluffs there, so they have like a dock and a stair system. So I pop up at the top of this dock and the stairs, and there's a big sign saying, if you see polar bears, leave the area immediately. And all of a sudden, I realized I left my bear spray in the boat. So that was a little <laughs> nerve-wracking. But thankfully, as I started heading towards the York, pa- York Factory Depot and the compound where the seasonal staff members live, they actually saw me. So they got out, came on their four-wheelers, and came down. And, you know, they're all armed. They have rifles with them. So uh, they came down, they helped me unload my boat, helped me get my boat up to the top, and then we actually brought all my gear to the staff cabin, and I actually stayed with them. They have a couple of extra rooms, and it's getting towards the end of the season, so it was, uh, there's not a lot of people there left. So I actually got to stay in like a nice cabin for the night, got a shower, got a fresh meal, like everything was great. So it was, uh, I didn't end up crying like I thought I was going to, but it was, it was kind of overwhelming the whole time. That I did this trip it was just very surreal like I'd been planning for three years and all of a sudden I'm on this adventure that I've been planning and then oh my gosh I finished the Minnesota River and made it over the Continental Divide and oh now I'm in Grand Forks back in the town I'm living in and now I'm in Canada and then when I got to Norway House that's where it really started to feel surreal you know I had always thought of Norway House as like such a far off distance place and I just never imagined myself actually being there And then all of a sudden I was there and I just, it was hard to process. So, and it just kind of continued that way and just became more and more significant as I got further on, like I'm actually here. (laughs) (laughs) So aside from that moment of, uh, of arriving in York factory, what was the moment of most joy on the trip? Oh, that is an excellent question. I would have to say 
probably when I was up north on the Hayes River, there was a couple of really awesome campsites I had, or like I stayed at a cabin just before going to Oxford Lake, to Oxford House, and there was a cabin on, I think it's pronounced Opiminagoka Lake, and that one's in a little bit, you know, another day before Oxford House, and there was just some awesome camping in there. I had awesome sunsets, amazingly beautiful sunrises. I woke up one of the days and I had really dense fog and like the sun started filtering through the fog. It was just beautiful. And I could have stayed there for weeks. I, you could have just left me with food and I would have been happy. Like that's all I need in the world right there. So that was probably the happiest moments on the trip, but it was all really cool. You know, it's hard to pick that. That's just a really awesome section there. That sounds like an amazing adventure all around. Yes. Yes, it was. So now that you've done this trip, you can't just stop. What's next? I don't plan on stopping. I've had a lot of people ask what's next. For now, I do have to save back up before I can do a big trip. These kind of big trips, they do take a lot out of your finances. But I do have some little trips planned in the immediate future. I actually am working on doing the Trans-Catalina Trail in Southern California. I'm hoping to do that in early December with some of my cousins. And then we actually scored some permits for the Lost Coast Trail up in Northern California. And that's a really awesome part of California wilderness that has uh, been completely untouched by a lot of people. Like they were gonna put a highway system in and it's on such an active fault up there and it's such a beautiful coastline. They ended up having to move the highway inland and that whole area is just wilderness that's protected. So it actually walks along the coast and up in the bluffs and it's really, really beautiful volcanic beaches with black, black sand, black stones. So I'm super excited about those. Long term, I do still plan on doing like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail. I have some long distance trails in Ireland I'd hope to go do. One of my friends is trying to get me into bike packing. He wants to bike pack the Great Divide and go to Norway and Iceland for bike packing. And I have another friend who wants me to kayak the Missouri River in the States, which is actually the United States' longest river. So there's some, there's some cool trips coming ahead. Excellent. Well, I wish you the best on, uh, on all those trips in the future, and may you find fantastic maps. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fellow, I call it a map nerd. Um, yes, yeah. You know, GPS is okay, and it helps do all the location and all that, but there's just something about something having a map, about being able maps. to oh, unfold yeah. that. And be able to see the context and just dream about wh where you are and where you could be. Absolutely. So how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions and they want to learn more? Yeah, so I actually have a couple forms of ways that they could reach me. I have a website, www.expeditionalpine.com. And then I also have corresponding Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is under Expedition Alpine. My handle on Instagram is expedition underscore alpine. I do have a YouTube account, but I don't have much on there right now. I'm hoping to get some more stuff on in the future. Facebook is really my main way of updating people, and then probably Instagram as a secondary. Definitely follow along, though. I do plan on writing a book about this journey. I'm actually in the process of writing up a manuscript about it right now. So that hopefully will be coming within a year or 18 months or so, and that'll get posted right on my Facebook and Instagram so people can see it. Excellent. You'll have to keep me updated on that as well, and uh, we'll share that out uh, to listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. This has been fantastic. I've loved learning about this journey and all of your experience in preparing for the journey, as well as all the neat things that you experienced along the way. It's been a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I've got one last question for you. Okay. And that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? 
you know, I have a friend, his name is Joseph Solomon, and he just did a really awesome trip over the past two years. He, his uh, organization is called Kayaking for a Cause, and they support mental health awareness. So two years ago, he was doing the Mississippi River end-to-end, -end, and he actually, right at the very end, he got his trip ended because of a hurricane that came through. So this year, wanted to finish it but he didn't just want to do that little section so he did I believe the Ohio River into the Mississippi River and down through and he just finished not too long ago and now he's working as a tour guide down there for a kayaking and canoeing company and it's just you know he, he has such a cool story to tell so well great and yours was a very cool story and uh, any friend of yours I bet would have a cool story as well so I will look forward to connecting with you uh, offline we'll get Joe's information and connect with him as well absolutely thanks Madison, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your story. Thanks for having me. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. What an adventure of a lifetime, and she's just getting started. And she sure went big for her first expedition, too. Be sure to check out the show notes at www.paddlingtheblue.com for links to some of her, the reference books she used, a bit about her citizen science project, the Bob Swanson Memorial Grant from Big Agnes, and more. Our next guest is Steve Ramsey. And Steve is referred to us by Cyril Deramo, and he's going to join us to share his experience competing in the Yukon River Quest. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.